This afternoon's Psalm of Ascent is Psalm 127. You will find it projected behind me. You will find it in your order of worship on page 11. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good afternoon again. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, it's been a few weeks, and uh, while we were gone, um, the Dobbs ruling came down from the Supreme Court, and um, I have zero legal opinions to offer and zero political opinions to offer, but felt it was appropriate to take just a minute to give a couple of pastoral reflections um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, First, just a bit of our story. We moved to Fort Worth in 2019 so that I could work for RUF and um, decided to come to Trinity. And one of the things that we were struck with uh, immediately was Trinity's commitment to the sanctity of life, to the sanctity of all life. Through the teaching of the whole council of scripture that all of life is sacred, everyone is created in God's image and worthy of dignity and honor. And then through the local partnerships that we learned about, through um, caring for the unborn and pregnant mothers with Pregnancy Lifeline, through our care for refugees with DASH, or fighting sex trafficking uh, alongside the net, and encouraging and developing students with River Tree, uh, Trinity, as a church, gives thousands and thousands of dollars to these organizations and thousands and thousands of hours of your time uh, to serve and support these ministries. And so we were really struck uh, by that commitment and are so thankful for it. In light of that commitment, I think it's appropriate as a church that we rejoice in the recent Supreme Court decision. We're thankful for God's mercy and his kindness in overturning Roe versus Wade. There are Christians, many of you, older saints, who've been praying for almost 50 years for uh, the overturning of this ruling. And we give thanks to God for the decision. As I say that, I recognize that there are some, maybe even some in this room, who find it difficult to rejoice. Maybe you or someone you know bear the marks of abortion Or maybe you're in a crisis or um, may even be considering an abortion. Some of you may just be fed up with the church's hypocrisy and response to caring for um, the needy, those who are um, either unborn or born. You may be frustrated with the ways in which the church has responded to those challenges and not lived up to its spoken pro-life commitments. Some of you may be weary and broken 
over how hurtful Christians have been towards those who disagree and have created a, um, just a terribly polarized uh, political culture and even made politics out of a biblical issue. What do we do? We rejoice knowing all of those things. How, how should Trinity respond? I think um, the phrase that keeps coming to mind actually comes from a Scott Saul's article. It's in a chapter in one of his books. Um, the article is on abortion, and he talks about being comprehensively pro-life. And so just to take a minute, what does it look like for Trinity to be comprehensively pro-life in a post-Roe world? I think first it needs to be said that Trinity is a place where it's safe to tell our stories. The good and the bad, the glory and the shadow. That this is a place where we love one another and care for each other as a family. Uh, If you want to talk through these issues, you can talk to me, you can talk to Brian when he gets back. You can talk to a friend, a community group leader, Susan, our women's ministry coordinator, our women's shepherding team members, uh, deaconesses. There are a lot of folks here willing to listen to your story and to hear and to share their stories. We're also here with abundant grace and forgiveness and tangible help for anyone in need, single moms, foster families, crisis pregnancies, adoptions. I think it's time as a church that we redouble our efforts to care for and promote the sanctity of life for all. Over the next couple of months, we're gonna have opportunities to share ways for us all to get involved in these comprehensively pro-life efforts. From buying formula and diapers to support adoption agencies to serving potentially as a foster care babysitter or respite care volunteer to mentoring fourth graders at a local elementary school, there will be a lot of opportunities for us, even more than I've just mentioned, for us to get involved. We'll be sharing specific prayer requests of our ministry partners, finding ways to honor this biblical commitment to the sanctity of life all of life. Uh, If you want to talk after the service, we'd even love to put together a small team of people willing to brainstorm some new ways that we can be involved in this process. As the number of adoptions and the number of foster care children increases, we want to be a place that is proactive and involved in any ways that we can. If you're interested in helping us think through some ways to do that, would you talk to me? Find me after the service, shoot me an email this week or something. Let me know and we'll try to pull you together to be able to brainstorm some ways that we can do this. Lastly, I'd ask you to pray for God's continued mercy and kindness to our nation and its leaders, for Trinity, for our local ministry here in Fort Worth, For all of our members, that we would love our neighbors so well that there wouldn't even be a need for abortion. As Scott says in his article, wouldn't it be great if communities existed where any mother, married or unmarried, would feel welcomed and loved and know that her needs and the needs of her child would be attended to? If the church does what the church is called to do, then there will be no poor or disregarded or demeaned in our midst. In short, I would rather build community and dialogue and live in a society where abortion, due to the love ready to be given to any child and any mother, is not merely illegal, but unthinkable. Let me pray to that end, 
and then we'll, we'll dig into the sermon. Uh, Lord God, you are kind in all that you do. We are thankful for the ways that you have been at work uh, to undo Roe. Uh, we thank you for this Dobbs decision. We, we ask, Lord, for uh, continued wisdom for our elected leaders and officials as they make further uh, statewide laws across our country. Uh, Lord, would they uh, know the truth of the, the gospel? Would they lean into it? Would they act accordingly? Would they seek justice and righteousness? Lord, for those in our church who may feel it's hard to share their stories, would you continue to make this a place where uh, we are free to share our stories? Be vulnerable with one another and find the care and the love and the acceptance and forgiveness that we need. Father, would you give us opportunities to love um, pregnant mothers, uh, the unborn? Would you help us to continue to love refugees well, uh, to fight sex trafficking, to care for those in our community uh, who need it? Father, continue to give us opportunities even as we move to the building uh, to love and serve folks there. Father, most of all, would you be glorified in all that we do? Uh, would the beauty of Jesus be seen and displayed in how we care for the least of these? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. I, I hope that was helpful. Um, I'm free to talk to anybody. Would love to catch up. We're in town the rest of the summer. So if there are conversations, um, would, love to, would love to do that. As we turn to our sermon for today, we're going to look at Psalm 127, and uh, it is a psalm of ascent. Uh, it's the eighth or ninth one, I forget uh, on the math, but um, kids, let me give you all something to, to listen, a few things to listen for. First one is Solomon. The second one is a story about a mirror. And then we're going we're gonna to try to learn a new word today. This is a big one. It's a little bit of a stretch, but uh, meritocracy. Your parents can help you spell that um, if you're trying to write that down. Meritocracy. So that's a big one. It's, it may be a reach, but um, grown-ups, as, uh, as we get into this, we're going to look at anxious toil and contrast that with fruitful effort. So hopefully uh, those are the two points uh, where we're going this afternoon. Uh, just a couple of introductory things as we get started. First, remember this is a psalm of ascent. It's one of the block of 15 psalms that the people of Israel would have sung on their way up to to, to celebrate the festivals in Jerusalem. And it is a psalm. This one is a Zion psalm, a Jerusalem psalm. It helps us think about um, what it's like to live at home, to build and to protect. Um, it's a wisdom psalm. You'll notice it's a little bit different, right? There aren't, often psalms have prayers, and there are uh, prayers or praises that are offered in the psalm. This one is more wisdom sayings. It's written by Solomon. It's one of two psalms of the 150. Uh, psalm 72 is the other one. 72 and 127 are the two psalms written by Solomon. And they, they sort of feel like they were written by Solomon. If you've been around the Bible at all, Solomon was David's son. 
Um, he was the one who actually built the temple, if you remember, where God says, you can ask for anything that you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon asks for wisdom, and he, he, he gets it. God gives him wisdom, and he writes the majority of the Proverbs, right? So this has a very Proverbs kind of feel to it. It's going to talk about wisdom for godly living. How do we live in this world uh, as followers of God? The historical setting is a little, there's some questions about that. It's a little bit tricky to know. Some folks tie it to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Uh, You may remember we read that story a few weeks ago. We'll talk about the Tower of Babel uh, in a few minutes, kind of draw the the parallels to that. Some think it's, again, uh, around Nehemiah and the return from exile uh, that the Israelites, they came back and had to rebuild and protect this new city that they're rebuilding. And so there are some thoughts there that that's, um, that's kind of the setting of this psalm. Now, I don't know that there has to be a right answer. Nobody really knows. We, we won't know till heaven. But um, this, they're both instructive for us, and we're going to see uh, how they're instructive for us as we as we get into it. If you would turn quickly, if you have your Bible in front of you or maybe it's on a device, um, just look, I wanna just give kind of the format so you sort of know what's happening in the psalm. There are two main ideas in this psalm. Um, The idea of building and protecting, and if uh, my Hebrew uh, is rusty, um, but I've had it. Like I, I've been, I attended the classes. Um, uh, it's rusty, but it, it, there's some Hebrew sort of wordplay kind of happening here. So let me see if I can unpack it. it. It sort of parallels itself. So the first half of verse one, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, parallels verse three. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Now, um, this word build is a word that's used a lot in the Old Testament. It can be building um, houses. It could be building the temple, right? Solomon built the temple, so he talks a lot about building. It could be building physical structures, but it also talks about building families, Right, So it's used a lot in Genesis for talking about people building their family, right, the house of Israel or whatever. So there's this parallel between building a house and building a house like a, a family, like the house of David, right? So you have this parallel. And then the second half of verse 1, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain, parallels verses 4 and 5. So um, four and five say, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. And the idea here is one of protecting, right? The watchmen, they've they've got to depend on God for their protection to be worth anything. Well, uh, the, the message version of this says, if God doesn't protect the city, the watchman might as well take a nap, right? That's the idea. That this, for this protection to be effective, uh, God has to be at work. And that same thing is true with children. Children in that day, and maybe even some now today, uh, help protect 
parents, right, there was this idea of protection. The one who comes to speak with his enemies in the gate, there's this idea of children kind of helping protect the city. And, and then they, all of these parallelisms kind of find their culmination in verse 2, where you see the contrast. It says, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. And so you see in this contrast, this building and protecting, it's not dependent on our anxious toil. It's nothing that we can do on our own. But it's God who gives to his people. And he gives sleep. We're going to come back and talk, to, talk about that in a minute. Um, but I think it's helpful to see kind of how the psalm gets laid out. So let's dig in. We're going to talk about anxious toil for just a minute. It's going to be super fun. So uh, strap in. Um, the, the idea, um, I was trying to think, what's the best way for me to describe anxious toil? And it... It really is holding up a mirror to myself, or for you to hold up a mirror. Uh, for a lot of us, anxious toil is the water that we swim in, it's the air that we breathe. There is hanging over us the worry of, am I doing enough? And right next to that question, am I doing enough, is the am I enough question. Right? Our work is so tied to who we are as people that, that there is this dark cloud like reigning over us. Am I enough? Am I doing enough? Is my work going to matter? Is there a legacy for me? That's anxious toil. And I, I don't know that we have to spend a ton of time thinking about it because we sort of feel it. And I, I'm afraid a little bit to poke too hard, if that makes sense, even in my own life as I've been thinking about this for a while. Just, I don't, I almost don't want to mess with these sacred cows in my own life, and I might, I might knock a couple of years over uh, in this too. Um, I think it's helpful, Eugene Peterson's The Message uh, is just a, a translation of the Bible. Sometimes it's incredibly helpful. I think this one's really good. He, listen to how he writes these first couple verses. If God doesn't build the house, the builders only build shacks. If God doesn't guard the city, the night, might, the night watchman might as well nap. It's useless to rise early and go to bed late. Work your tired fingers to the bone. Don't you know he enjoys giving rest to those he loves? And my answer when I hear that, don't you know he loves, he enjoys giving rest to those he loves, is like, well, maybe. <laughs> Like, I, I know it, I kind of know it, like I read it on the page, and it makes sense to me that God is kind to us, but I, I don't know that I know it, like existentially know it all the time. You feel that? I think there is a spoken theology and a functional theology. Maybe you've heard this dichotomy before. There's the thing we know, right? You guys could, a lot of you, if you've been around Trinity for a while or you've been around the PCA or you've been in a church for a long time, you know that you are not your work. You know that 
your efforts alone couldn't save you and aren't going to matter in, a, in, in an individual sense, right? We, we can say all of those things. And then we live completely the opposite. Our functional theology is some version of, I've got to do this. There is no alternative. I have to work this hard. And actually, as hard as I'm working, it's not hard enough. It's never done. There's a, um, a it's apocryphal, but uh, among pastors, there's, I think it, it originally started with a poem. One of you um, English majors, I'm sure, can correct me, but I, I've mostly heard it when it talks about sermons. Sermons are never done, they're only abandoned, <laughs> right? They just get given. They're never done. Do you, do you feel that in your work, right? If you are a, a, a poet, right? I think that's actually where the, the, the quote comes from, right? That poems are never done. They're only abandoned. But fill in. What is your, right? Your lawyering, your doctoring, uh, your teaching, your whatever. It's never done. You just go home at some point. <laughs> right? Or in COVID, right? You never, you, you never get away, <laughs> right? And that is, that, it's just normal, right? One of the most disrupting things about COVID was that our normal got taken. The rug got swept out from under us, and we, there were many sort of existential crises I'll just talk for pastors, among pastors who couldn't do their normal anxious toil because they couldn't see people in COVID. We never work enough. Even though we know the spoken theology, we live as if it's on us. If our existence that our existence depends on every moment. I, I am defined by the next deal. I'm defined by the next whatever, the next thing, the next, whatever I've done before is not good enough. It's always about the next thing. I've got to, in order to be, in order to matter, to be worthy. This is the Tower of Babel, right? in order to make a name for themselves, right? God's command in creation was to fill the earth and subdue it, to make little worshipers as Adam and Eve and all of their descendants had babies, to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. And instead of making his name great, they built a tower to make their name great. And God says, no, we're not, we're not doing that. We're going to confuse the language and disperse everyone. It's interesting, at the end of chapter 11, we're not down to the, the next section yet, but the, to, to bookend this Tower of Babel illustration, you have the futility, the, the, the vainness, the, the worthlessness of the work of the people building this tower. And then at the end of chapter 11, you get an account of God giving children to Terah. And that blessing of children ultimately gets us to Jesus, 
right? Like you see this blessing of God giving good gifts to his people, not trying to make a name for themselves, but taking the blessing of children that's still blessing the world today. You see the contrast? Um, there's a famous, by now famous, David Brooks article um, on meritocracy. I looked it up. It's 20 years old, and it feels really um, even, it could have been written yesterday. Um, but just listen to his des- description. A meritocracy is a, a society built on what you merit. You're valuable if you merit, and if you don't, you don't matter. You're forgotten. Listen to what he says. Starting at birth, middle-class Americans are called on to master skills, to do well in school, practice sports, excel in extracurricular activities, get into college, build their resumes, change careers, be good in bed, set up retirement plans, and so on. This is a way of life that emphasizes individual achievement, self-propulsion, perpetual improvement, and permanent exertion. You feel that? Do you feel that? Individual achievement, self-propulsion, perpetual improvement, per- permanent exertion. It's what makes the Sabbath so weird, right? If you actually like keep a Sabbath, if you took a day of rest and worship, it f- it feels different. It doesn't make sense to us sometimes. If you just think you can stop working, that doesn't really get you there. Maybe you've tried to keep a Sabbath before, and you're like, I'm just going to stop working. I'm going to close the computer and put my phone in the drawer, and it's not enough. Listen, this is um, Judith Shulevitz um, writing about the Sabbath. There is ample evidence that our relationship to work is out of whack. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help admiring workaholics. Let me argue instead on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism in reasonable check for thousands of years. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. The inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was, much more compli- it was a much more complicated undertaking. You cannot downshift casually and easily. This is why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of will, one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as by social sanction. What she's saying is that you're going so hard, so heavy in your anxious toil that just to stop and walk away from it for a second, <laughs> you're, you're just getting swept away. It's, it is the, um, the riptide, right, at the beach, right? If you get caught in a riptide, you just can't stop. You have to actively fight against it. And the habit of a Sabbath can help us fight this anxious toil. What else helps us? What was fruitful effort look like? It is remembering the if in verses one and two. If God, right, or unless God, 
though, we have to remember that God is at work as we work. We are never alone in our work. This is from Eugene Peterson. The Bible begins with the announcement, in the beginning God created, not sat majestic in the heavens, not was filled with beauty and love. He created, he did something. He made something. He fashioned heaven and earth. The week of creation was a week of work. The days are described not by their weather conditions and not by their horoscope readings. Genesis 1 is a journal of work. We live in a universe and in a history where God is working. Before anything else, work is an activity of God. He is the one who works. Before we go to the sociologist for a description of work, or to the psychologists for insight into work, or to the economists for an analysis of work, we must comprehend the biblical record. God works. The work of God is defined and described in the pages of Scripture. We have models of creation, acts of redemption, examples of help and compassion, paradigms of comfort and salvation. One of the reasons that Christians read Scripture repeatedly and carefully is to find out just how God works in Jesus Christ so that we can work in the name of Jesus Christ. It is because God works that our work is fruitful. It's not in vain because God is at work in and through our work. He precedes our work with his work. One of the foundational uh, presuppositions of RUF's philosophy of ministry. RUF is the campus ministry of the PCA and uh, a lot of my ministry background is in RUF. And so one of the things that we often remember as we're about to sit down with another 19-year-old student is that God is at work. That that person, if they're 19, that God has been at work for their 19 years and even beyond, before they were even created, God has been providentially at work in their story to bring them to this meal. That could be great, it might go terribly. And either way, God is at work. He is taking the little pieces of our effort, that maybe the words that we say or the way that we say, you know, that we talk about the Bible or talk about who Jesus is, and he is weaving this tapestry that is much longer than the 45 minutes that we might get sitting down with a student. God is at work, and we remember that he is at work. And that feeds our work. It allows us to work. Now let me draw um, one connection here just as we close. The, the last half of this psalm, some people have even said, some commentators, that they were actually two separate psalms and in some hurry people just sort of put them together, right? That like their topics are just different enough but they're sort of written in the same way that maybe they could be thrown together. I think that's not true. I think there is a unity uh, in the way that this is written. The example of children is the one that Solomon uses for what fruitful effort looks like. Now, I'm going to try to um, be age appropriate here. Solomon is saying that the way that we participate in the making of children is the example of what fruitful effort looks like. None of us would call that work work. We enjoy it. It is wonderful, and we don't have control over what happens, whether a baby is made or not. 
We participate, but God is the one who ultimately is giving the gifts. Now, some of you may long to have children and maybe aren't able to, and this, this rings hollow or, or difficult. And I understand that as it's wisdom, some of you may even long to be married and aren't married yet. And so as we think about this, think about this in a wisdom way that that Solomon is putting forth an idea for you to understand. To say fruitful effort means that we continue to work, we do our part, but we recognize that behind our part is God who is the ultimate actor. He is the one giving heritage, children as a heritage. He is the one making our work influential or uh, to give it the gravity that it needs. Uh, Eugene Peterson again says this, In contrast to the anxious labor that builds cities and guards possessions, the psalm praises the effortless work of making children. Opposed to the strenuous efforts of persons who, in doubt of God's providence and mistrust of human love, seek their own gain by godless struggles is the gift of children, born not through human effort, but through the miraculous processes of reproduction which God has created among us. The example couldn't have been better chosen. What do we get, what do we do to get sons and daughters? Very little. The entire miracle of procreation and reproduction requires our participation, but hardly in the form of what we call our work. We did not make these marvelous creatures that walk and talk and grow among us. We participated in an act of love that was provided for us in the structure of God's creation. We work as God works. And as we remember that, our anxious toil changes to fruitful effort. The best picture of God's work and our work is actually in the person of Jesus Christ, who was human like us, but who lived the life that we couldn't, who died in our place and was raised to new life for us. God worked through the person of Jesus to bring redemption for all of his people. And it is that combination of effort that now that we have been saved by him, and that we find our rest in him, that we can then go put our hand on the plow tomorrow morning and work because of all of the rest that Jesus has accomplished for us. Because of all of the work that God has done for us, we are free to work and participate in what he is doing. May God use this to change all of us, to look more like Jesus, and to transform our work. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, you are kind to give us this word. We thank you for your love for your people. We pray that you would meet us. Would we begin to, to swim against our anxious toil? Would we find grace in you and rest in you? Would we joyfully participate in the work that you are doing? Increase our love for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.